Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is Luke chapter 7. Jesus is having dinner at the house of this religious leader. And a woman of ill repute, which means she's a prostitute, barges in. Women were not invited to these things, so what she's doing is socially unacceptable. And for a woman of her lifestyle to enter into this, she could get stoned. That's with a bang, not a bong. This woman risks her life to come see Jesus. And she cares more about what Jesus thinks of her than about what the religious people do. But what's so inspiring to me about this story is that this woman knows how she's going to be treated when she walks into that room. She knows how everybody's going to look at her, how everybody's going to judge her, how everybody's going to glare disapprovingly at her because of who she is, because of how she lives. She still has the courage to walk in the room. Church, do you know why? Perhaps the main reason that we do not confess, that we don't repent, and that ultimately we don't experience the freedom of our sins? It's because we care more about what the church people think about us than we do about what Jesus thinks about us. Church, if we want to grow in Jesus, if we want to follow him, if we want to become more like him, we have to be willing to honestly address the condition of our hearts. Because the gospel is a mirror that reveals what is broken in us. Not to condemn us, but so that we can see just how much we need Jesus. So part six in our series, The Kingdom is Near. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 16. One of the things that really caught my attention when I was looking at this, Nehemiah becomes aware of the situation in Jerusalem. He enters into a season of prayer and preparation before he presents his plan to the king. We recently entered into a season of prayer and preparation before we present an official kingdom campaign coming next year. The season of prayer and preparation that we are entering into from the moment it started until when we officially present our plan, four months. The season that Nehemiah spent in prayer and preparation before he presents his plan to the king, four months. Love to take credit for that. But Previously on Nehemiah, Nehemiah goes to the king. And he asks the king to rescind his own royal decree, which kings at this time did not like to do because it drew into question their own authority. In fact, Nehemiah could be executed simply for asking. The king asks Nehemiah, 
what he wants to do. And before Nehemiah answers, he prays. That's a really good practice and one that we should probably try to imitate. Because there's a lot of problems in our lives that would be solved if we prayed before we opened our mouths. Somehow, by the grace of God, not only does the most powerful man in the world agree to rescind his own royal decree and allow Nehemiah to go and build back the walls of Jerusalem. Well, he previously said, I don't want those getting rebuilt. Leave the city in ruins. He also provides Nehemiah with a letter of safe passage, and he provides Nehemiah with lumber from his own royal forest. So before he says, I don't want the city getting rebuilt, now he's providing the materials to rebuild it. In addition to sending Nehemiah with a royal escort to provide protection, support, and authority to what he's doing. For a book without miracles, no floods, right? Nobody gets raised from the dead, no seas get parted, and people walk across on dry land. The hand of God is at work all throughout it. And Nehemiah talks about it all the time. See, the people of God do not need big, flashy miracles to see the hands of God at work around them. So that's where we pick up our text in verse 9. And there are three things that we're going to learn from this text. Number one, faithfully following Jesus will always result in resistance. Number two, faithfully following Jesus requires rest. And number three, faithfully following Jesus begins with honest evaluation. So, let's dive in. Verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent, me, sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Finally. Nehemiah is headed to Jerusalem. His arrival there would, should bring great joy for the people of God as it means that their city, that their home, that the capital of their nation and the source of their national pride was going to get rebuilt. But not everybody was excited about his arrival. First guy that we meet is Sambala, whose name literally means sin gives life. Sambalat is likely the governor of Samaria. Uh, if you're not familiar, Jews and Samaritans have a long history, uh, basically during the Assyrian captivity with the Assyrians. And a lot of times in the Old Testament, what would happen when somebody conquered Israel, they would take a lot of the Jews out of Israel, typically the wealthy, the educated, and the influential, and take them into various areas around the empire so that they didn't have a whole lot of national support and strength where they were. And they would leave behind the poor, the peasants, the less educated people. And then they would bring in some of their own people to kind of live amongst them to try to avoid having uprisings within their own empire. Well, eventually, the poor, uneducated Jews began intermarrying with the Assyrians who were brought in, and thus Samaritans came to be. They are half Jew, half Assyrian, and the Jews and the Samaritans hate each other. Interactions between the two often ended in violence. So this is a guy who's kind of predisposed to dislike the people of God, to dislike Israel, and did not want to see Jerusalem get rebuilt. 
But both of these guys that are mentioned here, while their motivations may have been different, while their agendas may have been different, they are upset for the same reason. They don't want to see the people of God flourish. We don't even make it through two chapters, and we already have resistance. The Bible could not be more clear about this. Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus himself says it again and again. If you seek to live a godly life, you will have trouble. Sometimes that trouble is going to come in the form of people. People who don't agree with or like how much you devote to God, your pursuit of him, what you're willing to sacrifice for him. It's not that they're necessarily even against him. They just don't like how far you're going. Sometimes that trouble will come in the form of situations, obstacles and things that kind of bubble up in our lives, things that distract us, tempt us, or divert us away from doing what God has called us to do. Oftentimes, those troubles will come in the form of conflict with a loved one, typically a spouse. Not because your spouse is against you, not because your spouse is against what you're doing, but because that is one of the most effective areas to attack in order to prevent us from doing what God has called us to do. Wherever it comes from, however, the result is the same. It will absolutely come. If you seek to live a godly life, you will encounter trouble. There will be resistance. And yet, for some reason, as Christians, we tend to think of this resistance as a bad thing. Oh, I was trying to do this. I don't know what God's doing. I don't know why he's so mad at me, but he's making it so hard. I thought I was trying to follow, but it must be doing something wrong because there's struggles and there's problems and there's issues in my life. Resistance isn't the bad thing. It's a good thing. What it means is that you are not a bump on a log. Church, we're in a war. And we have an enemy. We have an enemy whose singular purpose and focus is to keep us from following Jesus. It is not resistance that should concern us. It is a lack of resistance that should give us pause. See, if we are nominal in our faith, we call ourselves Christians, we go to church on Sundays so that we can check that little box on our to-do list, but that's basically it. We're not actively serving, we're not engaging in godly community that challenges us and grows us, we're not pursuing Matthew 25 and living for Jesus, we're not growing in him, we're not reading his word and consuming it at home, we're not maturing and developing and growing in that relationship. We call ourselves a Christian, but that's basically the only evidence that exists that we actually are one. And you're sitting on the sidelines. And guess what? The devil doesn't need to attack you when you're there because you're a non-combatant. devil doesn't need to attack you because in being nominal in our faith, in not growing in Jesus, we're already doing his job for him. If you seek to live a godly life, you will encounter resistance and struggles and troubles. And it is so consistent that it's gotten to the spot now where if somebody comes to me and they say they want to start serving, they want to start engaging in community, they want to take a step in their faith, they want to even just share their testimony because maybe it'll be a blessing to others. One of the first things that I try to tell people is a warning. Brace yourself, you're about to get hit. It is going to come. But church, it is far better 
to experience pain and hardship and suffering and resistance with Jesus than it is to experience all the comfort and pleasure and treasures of this world without him. For there is no pain, no suffering, no heartache or loss that you can endure with Jesus that is not absolutely worth it. Because God is worthy of whatever you have to sacrifice, of whatever you have to give up, and whatever you have to lose in order to get more of him. And the first thing for most of us that needs to go on that altar to be sacrificed so that we can get more of God is our comfort. There are very few things in this life that hinder the Christian pursuit of Jesus more than our unwillingness to step outside of our comfort zone. And put it in perspective. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. He lived in the palace of one of the richest, most powerful men on the planet. He was surrounded by luxury, and he lived in it every single day. And he chose to leave the comforts of a palace to go to a dilapidated city he'd never seen, filled with broken people he didn't know, surrounded by enemies he'd never met. Jesus left the comfort of the throne of heaven to be born in a manger and die on a cross for us. Jesus left the comfort of heaven for you. How often do we refuse to leave the comfort of our living room for him? Faithfully following Jesus will always come with resistance. And we should not shun that resistance. We should wear it like a badge of honor. Because it means we are seeking to pursue and grow in Jesus. So Nehemiah is very interesting in that he saturates everything he does in prayer. Before he takes a step, before he presents a plan, he prays for months, devotes himself to prayer. Every step of the way, we see Nehemiah is praying. He's constantly praying. But here's what I like about Nehemiah. He's not just praying. Nehemiah is not just being super spiritual here. He's also being very practical. So if you remember, if you look back, what we looked at last week, what Pastor Rick unpacked for us, Nehemiah is at a celebration. It's probably the king's birthday, and he's kind of mopey, and so the king's like, what's wrong with you? So he tells him what's going on in Jerusalem. And then the king says, what do you want me to do? You know how Nehemiah responds? He answers the question. Do you know how he was able to answer that question? He thought about it. He had a plan. And so he presents a plan that he had prepared in advance because he was thinking about it to the king. And then the king says, okay, how long will it take to do all of this? And guess what Nehemiah does? He answers that question. How was he capable of answering a follow-up question? He thought about that too. See, what Nehemiah is not doing is being like, well, you know, like God's in control. And, like, he's going to take care of everything. So I'm just, like, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead of this. And so I'm just going to, like, chill here. I'm just, like, riding the wave, man. Like, he's not doing that. Right? He's not using spirituality as an excuse to sit around and do nothing. 
Nehemiah demonstrates every step of the way, careful, thoughtful, intentional planning and preparation. He is completely dependent on God. He is completely reliant on God. And he is completely focused on God, but he is not using that as an excuse to not do his part. Let me be really clear here, church. God needs nothing from you. There is nothing that you bring to the table, nothing that you give, nothing that you can do for God that he is not more than capable of doing better for himself. The success of what God does has nothing to do with your ability or the brilliance of your words, which is where we get in our heads, right? When we're talking, oh, I need to go talk to this person about Jesus, or I need to pray with this person. The first thing that we have is this fear. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I do the wrong thing? What if I don't know how... The success isn't dependent on you. It's dependent on God. God does not need your best, but he absolutely, unequivocally deserves it. We are called to do everything as if we are working for the Lord and not for men. Church, what that means is that Christians should be the best employees in the world. It means that every employer on this planet, even if they are absolutely against Jesus, should want to hire Christians because of the reputation that we have for the quality of work that we do. Because we're not working for our employer. We're not working for the paycheck. We're not even working for ourselves. We are working for God, and he always deserves the best that we have to offer. Verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem, was there for three days. Hold on. Hold on. What is he doing in Jerusalem for three days? Resting. The bum. He's got all this work to do. He's got this big giant wall to rebuild around the city. He gets to Jerusalem. He just kind of takes a three-day vacation. What's that about? Well, he did just travel 850 miles on a journey that would have taken him over a month. Yeah, he rests which seems weird, right? What is this rest thing he's talking about? That we live in a culture that confuses busyness with importance, that idolizes busyness, that worships production. We are a society that actually confuses who we are with what we do. We're so backwards in our thinking that we cannot even separate our occupation from our identity. And oftentimes, our own self-worth is found in our performance. Let's be clear. Hard work is important. Hard work is a good thing. Hard work honors God. Back Proverbs 6 says, look to the ant, you sluggard. We are called to work hard. It is good. It is God-honoring to work hard. But do not make the mistake of worshiping it. Rest is not a suggestion. It is a command of God. And let me be clear, when I say a command, I'm not talking about it's one of those weird, obscure laws that gets tucked into Deuteronomy right under the thing about not wearing clothes of mixed fabric. It's in the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. 
you need rest. And God created an entire day for his people to rest. When, church, was the last time you used it? Let me be clear. When I say used a day of rest to rest, I don't mean I got a bunch of activities done in my family. We all went out, did all this fun stuff, and it was super busy, and we were doing all these things, and it was great because it wasn't work, so it counts as rest. Nope. I don't mean I had a big, long list of stuff at home that I needed to get done, and I got it done on my day of rest. Nope. When was the last time you took a day to rest, and what you did in that day was rest? I get it, right? I'm busy. I got lots of stuff going on. I got kids. We got activities. We got projects. We got stuff that needs to get done. I'd love to rest. I just, I really don't have time. I got all this other stuff going on, and I got all these great excuses to not do what God, the creator of the universe, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the giver of life, the sustainer of life, the guy that breathes every breath of life that I have into me and knit me together in my mother's womb, tells me to do You know what it's called when God tells you to do something and you don't do that thing? It's called sin. Wait, you're saying that not taking time to rest is sin? Yes. The Bible's not shy about that. Now, what we learn from Jesus in the New Testament is that the Sabbath can be applied in different ways. It doesn't have to be you take all of Saturday and do nothing in a legalistic form, but you need to rest. Well, I rest at night. I go to sleep. You think that the law was given to people who didn't sleep? I think the Jews, before they got this, were like, oh, I guess I'll go to bed at night. No. Rest is in addition to sleep. Sleep doesn't count as your rest. Some go, amen, yeah, that's right. Before you agree too hard, make sure that you're not using holiness as an excuse for laziness. God's command of rest is not a justification to not push yourself, to not discipline yourself, to not work hard, or to not do things that you don't want to do. It is not an excuse for laziness. So, for some of us, so we need to understand is that life is about balance. Hard work is a good thing. Some of us need to kick in the rear to get it in gear. The rest of us need to hear this. Don't confuse activity with spirituality. Not being able to sit still is not a kingdom virtue. It is not a kingdom value. In fact, there's an offense to God who says, be still and know that I am God. When, church, was the last time you were still? Faithfully following Jesus requires rest. There are so many things. Basically, every aspect of our life suffers when we neglect proper rest. But perhaps the most important thing that rest does is that it teaches us that we are more than what we do. 
in a world of production, in a world of performance, in a world of I am what I accomplish, rest reminds us that Christianity isn't about doing, it's about being. So before Nehemiah enters into this great big project to serve and honor God, he takes time to rest. Verse 12, then I arose at night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon springs and to the dung gate. Dung gate is exactly what it sounds like. That's where they got the excrement out of the city. I'm sure it's a really nice place. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the walls. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So after resting, the first thing that Nehemiah does is he takes stock. He evaluates. He goes out at night with some trusted friends to take a look at the condition of the walls, to look at the project that he had to complete, and he does it on his own. He doesn't tell anybody what he's doing. He doesn't inform the civic leaders or the spiritual leaders. He's not announcing it. He goes at night so that no one is trying to interfere with or alter his perception. He doesn't have someone else do this. He investigates for himself. He needs to see it with his own eyes. See, before Nehemiah can do what God has laid on his heart to do, he needs to understand the obstacles and the challenges that are in his way. Godly obedience often begins with honest evaluation. So Nehemiah goes out and he checks the walls himself. And what he found is that Jerusalem is a mess. The walls are in ruins. The debris was so bad at one point that his mount couldn't even get by. And the condition of the walls and of the city of God is a reflection of how the people of God had neglected him. Today, church, the condition of the mission of God is a reflection of how we, his people, have neglected him. So just as Nehemiah inspected the brokenness of the walls, we need to inspect the brokenness of our hearts. For it is in the honest evaluation of our hearts in light of what the Scripture teaches that we grow in humility and that we are led to confession and to repentance. Because when we take a look at ourselves, when we take an honest look at ourselves and we see clearly who we are and what we are, we see clearly how much we need Jesus. Church, we need to look at ourselves. We need to evaluate ourselves against the proper standard because we need to compare. Not compare ourselves to other Christians. Not compare ourselves to a group of cherry-picked people that will make us look good by comparison. We compare ourselves to Jesus. Because we cannot build on the new life, the foundation of the new life that Jesus has given us until we've cleared away the rubble of the old one. 
This is why a lot of times people come to Jesus, they give their life to Jesus, but they don't end up looking any different or acting any different or being any different. Jesus gives us a new life, but they don't take the time to clear away the rubble of the old one. Well, you can't build anything new when the rubble of the old is in the way. So we need to hold the mirror of the gospel up to our hearts so that we can dispel the absurd notion that we are good people. You are not a good person. And just to make sure you know that that is not coming from a judgmental, self-righteous position. I am not a good person. If this was a competition, you would be winning. Your sweet Uncle Joe, who would do anything for anybody and who has a servant's heart and is so kind and you just love him so much, not a good person. We are wretched, depraved, sinful people who willfully and regularly commit treason against the king of kings. And we need to understand that about ourselves. We need to see the brokenness that exists in our hearts. We need honest evaluation of what is broken so that we can build what God has called us to build in our lives. We cannot appreciate the greatness of who Jesus is without recognizing our brokenness. Because what happens, church, is this. If you believe that you're a good person, you know, you live a good life, you do good things, you care about people, you try to do what you should do, and you look out for others, you try to be thoughtful and considerate, so yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm basically good. If that is what you believe about yourself, that you are in essence a good person, then Jesus will never mean much to you. You might believe in him, you might like him, you might respect him, but you're never going to sacrifice for him, you're never going to lay down your life for him, because you don't think you need him that much. He's good, he's helpful, he's great, but I'm pretty good on my own. The woman in Luke 7, when she barges into the house where Jesus is having dinner with Simon the Pharisee, she falls at his feet, broken and aware of how sinful she is, and she weeps. And her tears wash his feet. And seeing the dirt that was left on Jesus' feet, the shame with which the religious leader had treated Jesus by not having his feet washed, she washes his feet with her tears and she dries them with her hair. She uses her glory, her honor, the most noble and respected part of her, to wipe away the shame that Jesus has been treated with. And Simon, the Pharisee, is judging her. In his head, which for some of us, would be a nice refreshing treat. He's judging her. And he's thinking, if Jesus really was this man of God, if Jesus was really so special, he would know what kind of woman it was that was touching him. And Jesus responds to his thoughts. That's got to freak you out. He says, Simon, I got a question for you. He says, there's a money lender who, owes, who have two people who owe money. One owes a great debt and the other owes a small debt. And the money lender, he cancels both debts. Who's going to love him more? Simon says, the one who had the greater debt forgiven. Jesus says, you have judged correctly. He who has been forgiven much loves much. 
And he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Here's the twist. The difference between us is not the size of our debt. It's our awareness of it. How you respond to Jesus has nothing to do with how much you actually owe and everything to do with how much you believe that you owe. So when you say that you're good, that you are basically a good person, what you are declaring is that you don't owe him very much. And thus you will love him very little. Because if we understood for one second the significance of our sin, if we understood just how bad we are, we wouldn't be able to get out of bed in the morning at the thought of how incredible it is that Jesus would come for us. We have to understand, church, how bad we are, how bad our sin is, that it is a cosmic act of rebellion against a perfectly holy king and God. To know that your moral, ethical, decent life means nothing. Because the Bible could not be more clear. All have sinned. All have fallen short. No one is righteous. No one is good. No one seeks God. All have fallen short. God has a standard, and none of us are even close to it. If you were the greatest human being who ever lived, you did more for other people, served other people more, loved other people more, if by comparison you made Mother Teresa look like Hitler, you are not close to the standard that God has. And yet God looks at us in that brokenness. He looks at the disrepair of the city of our heart, and he chooses to love us. Not because he was so wowed by how awesome you were. Because he chose to love you despite the fact that you weren't. Despite the fact that I'm not. He chose to love you and Jesus left heaven to become the propitiation, the sacrifice for our sin so that by the giving of his life, we might have life. Jesus sacrificed his life so that we could live. That is the beauty of the grace of God, and we shouldn't be able to get out of bed without being overwhelmed by it. Faithfully following Jesus begins with honest evaluation. And the life, church, that Jesus gives is a life that we are called to live for him. We are called to be the ministers and the administers of his love and grace to the world. We're not supposed to receive it. Right, Take that grace in and just hold on to it for ourselves. We are supposed to be conduits of it. And that's what we're looking to do. That's the season that we are preparing for, church, as we take the next steps in our journey together as a family of God. It's that we might better be conduits of his grace, that we might reach people in different walks of life with different experiences, and that we might show them just how much God loves them. Because we want, to, we want to be a place that sees God move. We want to be a place that the Spirit of God flows in us and through us and around us. We don't want to be a place where the Spirit shows up to visit on occasion. We want to be a place where He lives and dwells at all times. That you can't be here, you can't get near here without feeling the power of His presence because it is flowing through us. 
because we inspected the brokenness of our lives. And we set ourselves up to be conduits of his love and grace. Church, you want to see the world change? It doesn't begin by electing a political official. Change doesn't happen because of the White House. It changes because of what happens in your house. Change begins with your heart. Begins with your life. Change begins with honest evaluation, which leads to confession, which leads to repentance, which leads to transformation. The work of God in our lives begins with us inspecting what is broken in ourselves, that Jesus might mold us into the image of himself. And every great move of God begins with the repentance of his people. Church, when we turn away from our sin, when we let it go and turn to Jesus, we have the opportunity to become great conduits of his love and grace. Three weeks ago, if you weren't here, I'm going to recap this a little bit, but we, had, we passed out index cards for everyone. And we asked them to anonymously fill out the sin that they struggled with, whether it was something they did or didn't do, but the thing that they believed hindered their relationship with God the most. And they were, everybody wrote down their confession. And we put them in a bin, shuffled them all up, and everybody left taking home someone else's card. And I asked everybody to pray for it for two weeks. If you did that, I, I hope that it was a blessing to you. The writing of the card, that's a practice of confession. And the question that comes after that is, okay, well, what now? What next? We did this thing where we confessed. We did this thing where we prayed for other people. What comes next? What comes next, church, is repentance. We inspect. That's the process. We inspect what is broken in us. We confess that sin because when we confess the sin, we take the sin out of the darkness and we put it in the light. And once it is in the light, it loses its power over us so that we can break those chains and we can walk away from that sin. That is repentance. Repentance is to turn from sin and turn to Jesus. And that's what we're going to celebrate today is all about. See, church, you and I, we're not messed up people in need of a life coach. We're sinners in need of a savior. And so Jesus came to save us, not because we were basically good, but because we absolutely weren't. And so he came to be good for us. He came so that his goodness, his righteousness, his life might cover us and that through him we might have life. And so we take communion as a reminder of the cost that Jesus paid for us, that we might never lose sight of where our goodness comes from, of where our life comes from, that we might never fail to appreciate the significance that God loved us and allowed himself, his body, to be broken for us. And so when we take this bread, we remember, we honor Turn our hearts to the body that was broken for us. Let's take it together. And the blood, the cup that represents Jesus' blood, represents the new life that we have in Him. The Jews believed that power 
was in the blood and the symbol of this is by taking the blood of Jesus into ourselves, not only we remembering him and honoring him, but we're bringing him into our lives. Everything in the Christian life is about our immersion into Jesus. And so my prayer for us is that every time we take of this, we would be a little bit more like Jesus. Let's take it together. Heavenly Father, God, we praise you. We praise you for loving us despite our wretchedness, despite the unbelievable debt that we owed that you would deliver us out of your great love for us. God, I pray that we would never confuse who's responsible for our life, that we would let go of the notion that we are good and that we would live for you because Jesus was good on our behalf. God, I pray that we would honor you in everything that we do, that we would be a people that moved towards you despite resistance, that honored you with appropriate rest, and that was always evaluating ourselves, that we might confess and repent and faithfully follow you. God, I pray that you would guide each of us into opportunities to share your love and to show your grace to others. We thank you for sharing that love and grace with us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.